Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we are speaking with Jessica Leifert. Jessica has been a cat lady since she can remember and is quite certain that the cat-loving gene runs in her family. She currently works doing fundraising for an Indiana-based hospital, but prior to this work, she was the executive director for the Indy Humane Animal Welfare Center and founded the organization's community cat program. The program is in its third year of existence and is set to serve more than 1,500 cats this year. She was first introduced to community cats as a teenager, helping her father manage their colony at their home. Her family struggled to find solutions until they discovered TNR, and the experience of managing this colony inspired her to volunteer for Indy Feral after graduating from college. Her volunteer work with Indy Feral included trapping and transport, helping during volunteer-led spay days, and managing the organization's pet food pantry. Jessica currently lives in Indianapolis with her husband, Aaron, her two dogs, two indoor cats, and her two colony cats, Joey and CK. Jessica, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Stacey. What a great program you've already developed in three years, but I want to step back for a minute and let you tell our listeners how you got started. So when I was growing up, there was a family next door who moved away and left a cat. Um, my dad is, um, he is a huge animal lover and decided to start feeding the cat. We wanted to come up with some sort of solution to help the cat because we just felt so badly that she had been left behind. Unbeknownst to us, she had a litter of kittens and we didn't, we didn't discover the litter of kittens until, um, until they were a little bit older. Um, and by that time they hadn't been handled by people. And so they were feral and unsocial to people. So we, um, struggled to come up with an, uh, an option for what to do with these kittens. Um, and as they continued to grow, we realized that if we didn't do something, we would have more cats on our hands. And so it wasn't until probably two additional litters that we were able to get a handle on the situation. Um, and we discovered uh, Indy Farrell in Indianapolis um, as a resource. And because the organization was so was fairly new at the time, and they had so many people calling them for requests, we ended up getting having trouble getting in, in contact with some of their volunteers. And so we ended up purchasing our own traps and going at it by ourselves. That has been more than 10 years ago. Um, and by this point, that colony has, has thinned out to, to no cats. Um, but I think it's an excellent example of how community cat programs Programs can really serve the community in a and controlling the cat population in a non-lethal way. And I assume you continued to feed those cats after you had them uh, TNR'd? Oh, yes. We had a whole setup on, on the porch with, you know, heated shelters and uh, feeding stations, and, and they were all vaccinated and received veterinary care when they needed it. You know, even though we weren't able to touch the cats because they were unfriendly, they were very loved. You know, it, it made a lasting impression on me just because I, you know, I felt like there was, you know, such an injustice with this cat that had been left behind and kittens, you know, had been left to fend for them themselves. But, but yes, they were very well loved and, and cared for after they were spayed and neutered and vaccinated. I've uh, interviewed several people who have done quite a bit of trapping and they've sort of talked about the trapper's rush. Have you um, experienced that when trapping for this colony or for other colonies? 
Oh yes. When I was when I was volunteering with Indy Farrell um, years ago, I did a lot of trapping on my side of town, and it is so exhilarating. I can remember this one instance when I was helping a, a woman who was a little elderly, and she had a mother and three kittens, and I was able to get all three kittens in one shot. I mean, it was a regular box trap, but they all walked in together. It was amazing. Just just standing and watching that is just awesome. That's great. So it's it's kind of fun to be trapping feral cats. Oh, absolutely. And and there's a lot of strategy that goes into it, like, you know, the, the different kinds of bait that you use and where you set up your trap and what sort of things you put on it. Like those sorts of things are, um, you know, are kind of fun. It's, it's really a game to, you know, against the cat. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you started out as a, a volunteer, maybe what ten years ago or so. Yeah, just as a first as a colony, getting involved in colony management, and then you began volunteering for Indy Farrell, helping out with their clinics. Can you talk about your experience as a volunteer? I can remember the first time that I went in just to go tour and see see what things were about. Um, I was just amazed at the operation because it was one hundred percent volunteer led, including the veterinary staff and the vet technicians. Um, so it was just amazing to me that they were able to do so many cats in a day's in a day's time. I would volunteer a couple of times a month. Um, They had them on a Sunday. I started out pretty modestly. I was helping with uh, cleaning the traps um, between the cats having surgery. Uh, We'd make sure that the the traps were cleaned and when they were ready to go back into their traps for recovery, they'd have a nice uh, squeaky clean cage to go back into. And then I sort of worked my way up to to doing recovery um, and helping out with making packs and that sort of thing. So this was my first first exposure to seeing anything on the clinic side and I was just hooked. Um, So from there... I got involved in doing, you know, other aspects of volunteering, including the trap, the trapping we fostered. And then we also took my husband and I as volunteers took on managing their pet food pantry. Can you tell me a little bit more about the pet food pantry and how that was structured? We would see, you know, obviously a lot of the caretakers that we would serve were living in areas where they did have a high rate of, of stray animals. They needed a lot of assistance. Um, so oftentimes these were caretakers who needed significant financial assistance or for, or free services even to get their cats beta neutered, vaccinated, vetted if they had medical issues, that sort of thing. And so there was a huge need to to provide some colony management. Many of them would express a need for free cat food um, because they had such large colonies. And so that we had sort of a formula for, you know, how we structured how much food to give each caretaker. We communicate that this typically wouldn't last them the, the entire month, but that it was supposed to be a supplement. And we were really upfront with caretakers who came to the pantry that because it was all donated, that we were subject to stockouts at any time. So it, it was definitely a challenging program to manage because as you can imagine, there were many, many people legitimately needing help and getting this the food as just as donations was was always a challenge for us for sure. In one of our earlier episodes, we interviewed Jen Bennett from Positive Pantry up here in Vermont, and uh, getting just food donations is definitely uh, a challenge to run a pet food pantry that way. And therefore, she's had to significantly expand her fundraising efforts and you know purchase most of the food that helps go through the Vermont Food Bank, which goes out to all the individual people food shelves that are around the state. 
Well, and I um, I would say that with with our the food pantry that I managed with Indy Farrell, it ended up being merged with a um, dog and cat food pantry, and so we had the caretakers all going to to one location where dog and cat food was being distributed. And what we found was that oftentimes, in terms of donations, we would get far more donations of dog food than we did cat food. And so we ran into the same issue of needing to purchase cat food. You know, I don't know if it's a result of the bags are smaller and so they get broken less easily or if there's just a lower volume of cat food and so therefore we got fewer donations you know from the broken and, and busted bags um, but the cat food was the cat food side was definitely more challenging and then you add to the fact that with some of our caretakers the their colonies were so huge that they desperately needed you know extremely large quantities I think that was probably the most challenging aspect of managing the cat food side for sure there's a lot of volume there just even yeah. for one to two feeders if they're managing quite a few colonies. Absolutely. One of the, one of the smartest things, if anyone's thinking about managing or starting a pet food pantry, one of the smartest things that we decided to do was come up with a very distinct formula. Um, so if you have X number of cats, this translates to this many pounds of food. And then we also would combine all the donations that we had. So typically we would get these bags that were broken in some way. Some of them were completely mortally wounded, you know, just unsavable with packing tape. At first we tried taping up the bags and then trying to come up with a good way to distribute food uh, fairly. But what was challenging was that somebody would look at, you know, what we would call a 10 pound bag and say, I, well, I don't think that's 10 pounds or they'd want a specific brand and we'd have to, you know, spend our time digging through to see if we could find that brand. So what we decided to do to remedy that was we got some large, uh, they're really trash bins, like on wheels, dumped all of our donations into to those, like just mix the food. And so you're getting a good mixture of higher and low quality food. So it kind of evens itself out when it's mixed. And then we had like measuring buckets for whatever our specified amount was, and then distributed the food and donated usually kitty litter buckets, or we'd get um, bakeries that would donate like a bucket that they'd had icing in and we'd spray those out and distribute the food that way. So it fixed a few problems. First, it allowed us to give a fair amount of food. It was a predictable amount of food each time. It provided caretakers with kind of a medium quality because we mixed a variety. And it was also more durable because people weren't taking these bags home that we had had to tape. So the durable buckets were definitely the way to go. So where did you get these donations from? Um, so that's a, that was an ever shifting um, issue because there would be times when you know relationship with a donor would would suddenly change, like a policy would change. For a long time, we were getting uh, donations from a Walmart return center. That facility closed down uh, maybe two or three years ago. Um, so that was a that was a huge blow to the, the food pantry. Um, but there was a uh, there's a human food pantry uh, in Indianapolis that gets returns from Target. Um, we get donations from there occasionally. Occasionally, we would get a note from a company that was like they had mislabeled something. Um, and so they'd contact, you know, like the local humane society. And, and then that contact would be passed on to the pet food pantry. Um, and sometimes those would be huge scores, like 10 pallets or something like, you know, something crazy like that. And then our local animal care and control facility would, they got donations from a local supermarket. And when they would have excess, they would call the pet food pantry to come and pick up donations. 
So a lot of networking, trying to take advantage of as many opportunities as possible. I would say the majority of the food came from those sorts of donation sources. It was a lot less common for us to to get donations from the public. And then, like I mentioned, we did purchase a fair amount of food and we were really strategic about couponing and taking advantage of sales. Uh, yeah, it was a variety of sources and it was the sort of thing where you know, that you never knew where your next donation would come from sometimes. And now let's take a moment to listen to a few words from our sponsors. Flashlight tag was fun when you were a kid, but no one wants to play hide and seek with their trap. Find your trap's location quickly and safely, even when you visit it at night with the Reveal Wild application for Samsung Galaxy, HTC One, Sony, Xperia, and other Android phones. Or go to tinyurl.com forward slash reveal wild. You seem to go from working at the Humane Society in Indianapolis very early on. You moved right into the executive directorhood very quickly, and you also started their community cat program. You want to tell me a little bit about how that got developed? So I started working for the Humane Society of Indianapolis in November of 2010. Um, I previously had a job in finance and was just doing a lot of volunteer work that I really enjoyed and wanted to make that a career. So I took a position in their clinic, knowing that they would be opening up their spay-neuter clinic in a couple of years. I was really interested in getting involved on the spay-neuter side because I had done some volunteer work with Indy Farrell and had done, uh, you know, had some experience with their spay days. So I really liked the clinic setting. So I patiently worked at the Humane Society until they opened up their spay-neuter clinic and then transitioned uh, to becoming their their office manager. So scheduling uh, appointments for spay-neuter and that sort of thing, uh, providing medical histories and, and records, that sort of thing. We had a leadership change um, in December of 2013, um, and so the the executive director at the time was promoted to that role, um, and so I took took on the role of the executive director at uh, the Animal Welfare Center in January of 2014. Because I had done uh, so much work with community cats, I, I will confess I didn't have my I didn't get my first dog until I was 21 or 22. So I'm very cat centric. Um, so I was super interested in expanding the community cat program or community cat program access in Indianapolis. When I was volunteering with Indy Farrell doing trapping and all those other things we've just talked about, we would have anywhere from 800 to 1,000 cats on the waiting list. And that just seemed crazy to me that there wasn't more capacity because conceivably in that span of time from a cat being on the waiting list until they were served, you can have litters of kittens. And you know, I just wanted to shorten the waiting time for caretakers that needed service. And so I, I got connected with your group through the mentorship program and and that was what started our community cat program. We had a mentor in Louisville with Alley Cat Advocates. She was, uh, Karen was a fantastic resource for us. And I came and visited her during one of her spay days and kind of learned her process and that sort of thing. And we um, kind of started from there. You know, we just did a few hundred cats with just that, you know, the starting mentorship program and then uh, received additional funding from the Joni Bernard Foundation. And I'm really happy that the program is still continuing strong and and it's become a good resource for people on that side of town. Just for a little bit of perspective, um, Indy Farrell is located on the east side of Indianapolis and the Animal Welfare Center is located on the west side. So the two groups work really collaboratively. So if we've got someone who calls the Animal Welfare Center who happens to live on the east side, we refer them to Indy Farrell and vice versa. The waiting list for cats needing help has gone down drastically. And we've also um, 
made it more accessible for, for individuals who, you know, may even struggle with finding enough gas money to get from one side of town to the other. Um, so it's been a really, really good partnership, I'd say. So looking at Indianapolis as a city, how is the city doing shelter wise with regards to live release rates? Last year, the shelter um, release stats, they they had a live release rate of over 80%, which is fantastic. Now, if we go back even 10 years, it was probably something around 50%. So, and I, I would say that the community cap programs are critical to that success. Indy Farrell runs a program called the, the Farrell Freedom Program. It's basically a, it's a program in which if a stray cat comes in through the shelter, if they are of good body score condition or is not adoptable, um, they're spayed or neutered vaccinated, given any medical care that they need, and then return to that to that area. And obviously, there are some parameters to, to deciding whether or not the cat goes back. So like certain situations, like if it's if it's too dangerous, clearly they'll seek a different option for that cat. Um, or if it's too ill or that sort of thing, um, they'll look for different options. But they try to match up those cats with caretakers. Hundreds of cats per year are saved from, from being euthanized because they're either re- reunited with their caretaker just by doing a colony search or can go back and be integrated with another colony if that specific cat's colony can't be found. While you were developing your community cat program, did you get a sense of what the general thoughts were about community cats across the state? Are there things happening in other parts of the state comparable to what's happening in Indianapolis, or are there still areas that are desperately in need of community cat programs? So I think that um, in the last five years, we've seen a lot, a lot more programs opening up and uh, from around the state. I, we've got several really wonderful assets to the to the state. Um, first, there is a, a spay neuter clinic in Bloomington, Indiana, called Pets Alive that does um, transport to almost the entire lower half of the state. They've got something like twenty or thirty transport partners, I guess, um, and so they work with humane societies and TNR groups um, in southern Indiana to coordinate spay-neuter appointments. And so that is a huge, huge help for the southern half of our state because they they serve a very large area of, of the state. And then there's another group in Indiana, um, which is a, a spay-neuter assistance program um, called Spay-Neuter Services of Indiana. And they provide assistance if people are, uh, they are receiving some kind of financial assistance. They can apply for a voucher to get cats fixed at a partner vet. Um, and so that is another huge asset for the state that's been really helpful and caring for community cats much easier. But I've seen in just the few years that I worked at the Humane Society, um, many more programs just in central Indiana that were opening up. There's um, at least two or three of the donut counties that are um, opening up community cat programs uh, and working collaboratively with the spay neuter clinics in the area. Um, so I think that's really, really encouraging. I think in terms of, I would say this is probably across the board, but you know, funding is always the challenge just because with many of the caretakers, um, being able to afford the services is usually the biggest hurdle to accessing care. I, I would agree with you 100% that fundraising is critical with regards to any spay and neuter program. And uh, I have the feeling that, that you and I could have a whole nother show just focusing in on fundraising. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so many of the caretakers need, you know, almost 100% subsidy on, on all of their cats. It's, it's, it's an extremely effective program, um, but it's definitely, it can be very expensive. So if you saw a stray cat on the street, what would you do? If you 
had asked me this question 10 years ago, I, I would have been <laughs> running after the cat trying to pick it up and save it. But I have my views on stray cats have, have drastically shifted. So I heard a statistic at a an Alley Cat Allies um, seminar a couple of years ago that um, a cat, if left alone, is 13 times more likely to be uh, to be able to get home as opposed to if someone were to pick it up and take it to a shelter, which I thought was extremely fascinating. So the reclaim rate for cats um, in shelters is something like one to two percent, which is crazy low. But cats, as we know, are extremely resourceful and often are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. Um, And so the I guess the point is that many times if if a cat's away from its home, um, they have a very good sense enough to be able to get back to their to their home. Now, if the cat appears feral, unhealthy, or if, if they generally look like they may not belong to someone, you know, there's definitely a distinction between a, a cat who's part of maybe a managed colony or even lives indoors. You know, even managed colony cats look extremely healthy and well cared for. Um, but if the cat looks like it's it's needing some help, the first thing I, I might do is kind of ask around to see if um, if there's anyone who's feeding it um, and then provide that person with resources in terms of where they can get the cat fixed, where they can get assistance with pet food, that sort of thing, and let them know about um, the benefits of helping that cat and why it's important to support them um, in their neighborhood. If people are interested in reaching out to you, Jessica, how would they find you? Um, so I would suggest, uh, so an email would be fine. Um, Jessica Lyford at gmail.com is my email address. And then for information about the Animal Welfare Center, folks can visit IndieHumane.org. Um, and then for more information about different community cat programs, they can go to SpayIndiana.org if they happen to live in Indiana. And then the FACE uh, Spay Neuter Clinic also has a lot of really great resources on their website. And that's FaceSpayNeuter.org. Jessica, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? I think um, one of the things that I try to keep in mind in doing this sort of work is that the vast majority of people support non-lethal ways of managing uh, cat populations. Um, It can be really easy to fall into feeling like people aren't supportive of community cat programs because you'll get the angry calls, people who, you know, just want the cats gone, that sort of thing. But, you know, studies are showing that 80 plus percent of people when asked um, would prefer a non-lethal way to manage community cats. You know, we can't underestimate the aversion that the population has to euthanasia as a means of population control. It, It can be so easy to assume that people are anti-community cats, but when when you really dig into it, I think people are uh, deep down supportive because they, you know, they are caring and they want to do what's best for the cats. That's great. You know, everyone in the community should know about all of these programs and be able to have access to them. And I know in some communities, We aren't at the point where you are able to have access to everything, whether it's a low-cost spay-neuter option or pet food resources, but it's getting there. I think we're getting there. And I really want to thank you today, Jessica, for coming on the show and sharing your insights. I feel like we could talk for a whole nother hour on a whole range of different issues. You've done an awful lot in the industry in the last 10 years and um, really seem to be a, a great visionary looking at what's the best thing to do for our cats in the community. So I want to thank you, Jessica, for being a guest on the show, and I hope we'll have you on again. Thank you so much, Stacey. 
Thanks for listening to the Community Cats podcast. If you could go to iTunes and review the show, we'd really appreciate it. When you do, take a screenshot of your review, go to communitycatspodcast.com forward slash review and enter your information and we'll send you a t-shirt. While you're there, don't forget to check out all the ways you can support the content you're passionate about. Thanks, everyone. (laughs) 